In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning to you on this uh, fifth, fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. Uh, we're quite a ways uh, from Christmas now, and Lent is right around the corner. And today's gospel, uh, which Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, which you just heard, is a portion of Jesus's, perhaps his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the most famous sermon ever of any sermon. And as I said uh, a couple of weeks ago now, uh, when we're reading the Gospels, uh, the Gospels are not written in a vacuum, nor are they uh, the beginning of a story. Uh, They're actually the climax of a story that's been going on uh, for a long time. You you really could say a a story that's been going on from all eternity, because as scripture says, the Lamb of God was slain from the foundations of the earth. So it's the climax of the Israel story. It's in continuity with what God has done through Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and and the nation uh, and the people of Israel. Uh, The story of Jesus is in continuity with and in fulfillment of the story of the so-called Old Testament. And I think it's important for us to make that distinction because if we just sort of call it the Old Testament all the time, we we can again think that uh, it's old in the sense that it's irrelevant or that it's outdated. Instead of as you read the New Testament, they're constantly bringing in the older sacred scriptures showing that these are being fulfilled and, and they're alive and active uh, even today in the life of the church. It's in continuity with the Old Testament. And if we think of that as we listen to the Sermon on the Mount, I think some things will begin to make sense about the text. For example, Jesus gives this sermon you know, on a mount, on a, on a big hill. Uh, being Floridians, we'd probably call it a mountain, bigger than anything we've got around here. And, and he does this not simply because, you know, it was sort of the red rocks of the ancient world. This is a good venue for speaking or for a concert or for a TED talk. No, no he does it in order to hearken back, to draw the minds of the audience back to when they received the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. So Jesus is correcting With the prophets such as Isaiah, we kind of got burned by Isaiah a little bit this morning, didn't we? Isaiah was was bringing it. But but Jesus is echoing the prophet Isaiah that the law has been misunderstood. And he's trying to reframe the purpose of the law and, and more importantly, what it means to follow the living God. And so what he's doing is that he's issuing a renewed law, a new law, the law of liberty, as it's called in the epistle of James, or the law of Christ. And much like Isaiah was in his day, Jesus is calling Israel and now the church back to her vocation as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I mean, as salt preserves and as salt gives flavor so is the church to act as this preservative or salt in the world that, that as salt would ward off uh, decay. So the church is to ward off evil and decay through her witness, carrying forth God's ways, even in the midst of persecution. 
As you read in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, immediately before this, Jesus is talking about blessed are those who are persecuted. He's saying that, that, the, that we have to be the salt and we have to be the light even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And the people of God are to be the light of the world for the sake of the world. You guys sick of Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 yet? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, it has, it has a magnetism. It has an effect on people. There's people that I know in this very congregation that have told me stories, not, not bragging, but people in their lives and uh, at the gym or in their work, they see something different about their life and they want to know what it is. So Jesus, with Isaiah, is calling Israel and is calling the church to be salt and light. This call to be an image bearer. And this call goes back uh, to Adam and Eve, to, again, the human vocation of image, image bearing. We are to reflect God's light, that is his nature and his character and his glory out into the world. And this goes back to Abraham, whose family, Israel, was to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So Christ is renewing and he's intensifying and he's issuing afresh the calls of Adam and Abraham to his disciples and to the church. So then the church is not, this is an aside, but the church is not plan B. There's this utter continuity between what God did in the Old Testament and what God does in Christ. Again, Galatians 3.29. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Who are the children of of Abraham ultimately? Is it a matter of ethnicity? No, what Paul says, it's a matter of being in Christ. So God calls Abraham along with his family to, to be the means by which he would rescue the earth. And that rescue ultimately comes through Jesus Christ, who is both his descendant and his maker. It comes ultimately through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we become salt and light only through our union with him. You see, he is the second Adam. He is the perfect image bearer. He is, as Paul says, the image of the invisible God. The, the icon, the exact representation. He is the light who shines in the darkness so that the Father can be known. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the faithful Israelite. And Jesus is the only begotten of God who perfectly keeps and therefore fulfills the law. And Jesus, as the light of the world... He shines the brightest from atop another mountain, Golgotha, Calvary. It is through his exaltation on the cross, through the shedding of his blood poured out in death 
for the remission of sins, that the nature, character, and glory of God are most clearly seen. Jesus is the most definitive revelation of God that we have. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, you know, in former times, God spoke through apostles and through prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken through his son. And what did Jesus say to his disciples when they said, show us the father? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. So Jesus is the most definitive revelation of of who God is, but he's also the most definitive revelation of what mankind is supposed to be as the, as the perfect image bearer of what we're supposed to, of what we are called to be in him. And the climax of his revelation, if you see, if like the, the shiniest part of the diamond, if you will, is ironically, perhaps, his death on the cross. That is the unveiling of God. That we see most clearly who God is and who we are called to be in the cross of Jesus Christ. The light shines the brightest out into the world. And that is that evangelistic edge that that we're following and that we're preaching and that we're encountering the crucified and risen Jesus. Of the cross, our Lord says, if I be lifted up from the earth, it's a reference to his passion. I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. Thus to be the light of the world, to be... That is to be little lights pointing to the great light. For us to be a blessing to the nations of the earth, we must become like St. Paul. We must always carry around in our bodies the death of the Lord Jesus, determining to know nothing except Christ and him crucified, understanding that our transformation and that of the world only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit working in those who faithfully proclaimed the gospel in word and deed. That was a mouthful. The transformation that we want to see take place in our lives and in this community and the world, it only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through those who faithfully proclaim the gospel in word and deed. And what is the gospel? I would just encourage you to... Memorize, I think, the most technical definition of the gospel that we have in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. That way, if someone says, what's the gospel? Here it is. For I, del- I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so just imagine like a colon in your brain right here. A colon grammatically, not uh, physiologically speaking. Because that would, that would be uh, unsettling, I think. <laughs> Wake up. There we go. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel, the crucified and risen Jesus. And to follow the crucified and risen Jesus is nothing less than the total transformation of our lives. And I would even say it's stronger than that. It's actually, the, it's actually the death of one life and the beginning of a new life, which is exactly what happens when we're baptized. When we're baptized, we're crucified with Christ. Let me stop right here. 
Everything in the Christian life flows from the cross of Christ. When we talk about the sacraments, what, what it is is that God in his grace is appropriating the finished work of Christ. So in baptism, we're united to him in his death. In the Holy Eucharist, we eat of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. We have the benefits of his passion and death by partaking of his body and his blood. So it all flows from the cross. The whole of the Christian life is us partaking in the benefits of the passion of Christ and his death on the cross. It all goes back to Calvary. So when we are baptized, we're, 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 we're crucified with Christ, we're buried with him, we're raised to walk in newness of life. Which is, it's not, not making this up from the catechism of the Catholic Church or Matt's own particular theology. This is just Romans 6. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? No. We, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that those of you who were baptized were baptized into his death? So one life has ended and a new life has begun. So it's a total transformation. The the death of the old man and and raised to walk in in newness of life in Jesus Christ. Which we see this in our readings today. Both Isaiah and Jesus are uninterested and even aggravated and angry about superficial engagement with the law and for our purposes with the ways of Christ. In fact, it, you know, as I said, it, it disgusts the Lord our God. I mean, to paraphrase Isaiah, you know, what is he saying? He says, okay, you're doing the stuff. You're fasting and you're keeping the calendar, but you're oppressing others. And while you're doing stuff, you're neglecting the poor, and then Jesus, if you keep reading the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, well, you may not be murdering people, well, good for you, but you're angry with them. You may not be committing adultery, but you, your hearts are full of lust. We are to uh, love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Uh, all of Romans 12, uh, we are to offer the whole of who we are in praise and thanksgiving for the mercy God has shown us in Jesus Christ. Get back to that in a second. What is Isaiah getting at and what is our Lord getting at? It, because I, is he saying dispense with um, the externals and dispense with your own personal holiness and, and do justice? That's what's really important. Is, that what I, is Isaiah like the first... Uh, social justice warrior, uh, ancient one. Is, he the, is, he the, is that what he's saying? No, we, we have this false dichotomy, I think, in the church where we have holiness Christians, people that are really concerned about their own personal holiness and, and, and preaching and doing what's right and wrong. And we have justice Christians, people that are really concerned about doing good in the world uh, and caring for the poor and all these sorts of things. It's not an either or. It's a both and. James, pure and undefiled religion before God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. There's justice, right? And to, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's both. It's, it's holiness and righteousness out in the world, 
but it's also caring for people, uh, all of whom are made in the image of God and for whom uh, Christ died. So it's a total transformation uh, of our lives, right? It's a total transformation. Romans 12.1, which, which you hear it alluded to every Sunday morning uh, in the Eucharistic prayer. Um, it says, in view of God's mercy. So Paul's, Paul spent 11, the first 11 chapters of Romans expounding the grace of God in Jesus Christ and, and the mercy that God has shown through him and the, and the power of the Spirit which raised Christ from the dead and raises us uh, from the dead as well in him. He says, in view of God's I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, when you come to understand all that, who God is and all that he's done um, in us and for us through Jesus Christ, the only reasonable response is to offer the whole of who you are in praise and in thanksgiving. Which, by the way, I hope that you guys are loving right one because it's so rich. And I would just, I would, com- I would commend you, I would encourage you just to take home your service booklet and read through the, the Eucharistic prayer um, to, to study it, to, to send me your questions and your comments. Sometimes I get uh, emails from people or phone calls and they say, you know, Father Matt, I hate to bother you, but I have this question about the Bible. I'm like, uh, that's like my favorite thing to do is to sit down and talk with people uh, ab- about Scripture. That, that's the fun stuff. Excel spreadsheets, not so much. That's the good stuff to sit with people and talk about the Word of God. But it, it's so rich. And uh, my favorite definition of the Book of Common Prayer that I've ever heard is this, is that it is a reordering of Holy Scripture for the purpose of public worship. It's the reordering of Holy Scripture for the, per- for the purpose of public worship. And if you listen to it, you pay attention to the things that we pray, it's almost all quotations of Scripture or allusions to Scripture. So you're going to hear us say, and Lord, we offer our souls, our bodies. You're going to hear Romans 12.1 in just, in just a few minutes. And Matthew 22. You're going to hear this. I'll just read it to you. You're going to hear in a second. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, and our bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. Why all souls? Why are we called all souls? Because it sounds cool? Well, yeah, I think it sounds pretty cool. That, that's part of it. I think it sounds pretty ep- epic. But, but why? What's the deeper theological meaning? Because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Because we want to be a light. We, we want to be those uh, who offer our souls to God in such a way that all souls may come to know Jesus Christ. That, our, that we would be enlightened by the light of Christ in such a way that it gives light to others. And, and that we're focused on what's most important, which is knowing Jesus Christ. 
just knowing Jesus Christ. I got to land the plane. I know this. Uh, we were, we, we have a, a few of you have had an opportunity to go out and, and serve at uh, Matthew's Hope, which it's not my hope. It's not in any way related to me. It, it comes from uh, Matthew 25, the gospel of Matthew, of, of wanting to uh, serve the least of these, those who are poor, who are poor and in, and in prison uh, and in need. And uh, I got an opportunity to tour their facility and to talk to one of their staff members. And I was so encouraged uh, because a lot of times, especially with works of mercy, you fall into that false dichotomy of, are we going to be like holiness Bible Christians or are we going to be justice Christians? Um, we're going to do a bunch of good stuff, but we're never going to talk about Jesus. And it is so refreshing to be there and to know that the people, the homeless that they work with, they share the gospel with them and they want them to know why it is they're doing what they're doing. And, and they were telling me, you know, a lot of people get really frustrated that, you know, people that, that live in the homes that we provide, that we have a Bible study that they have to go to. And I said, well, I think that's really good because I think it's ministerial malpractice if we meet the needs of the body and we never share with people the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can reach the end for which they were created, which is to see God, to know him, and to be united with him. So it's that both and, that we give cups of cold water in the name of Jesus, so that, yes, we want to meet those immediate, not th- those immediate needs. We don't want to give someone who's starving a track, you know, and just say, hey, see you later. But that was so encouraging that, that we're bringing together um, all of all the fullness of what it means to follow Christ and to make him known uh, in the community. And, and we're, we're privileged to be able to partner with them. So right, right after you hear that, that allusion to Romans 12, that near quote of Romans 12 and, and um, the Eucharistic prayer, you'll hear that our self offering and our consequent union with God is only possible through the blood of Jesus. It is through the cross of Christ that we are able to live the Christian life and let our lights shine. So brothers and sisters, let us seek the crucified and risen Jesus in prayer, in fellowship with one another, in scripture and in sacrament, cooperating with the spirit of God who indwells us and empowers us for the mission that he has given us uh, to reach the world for their sake and for his glory. Amen.